0: Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for the Monday, March 13th reading of the Boulder Daily Camera and Longmont Times Call. My name is Anita Head. Today we will be reading the following main articles. Survey on Rent, State Youth Want Stabilization by Elizabeth Hernandez. Women's basketball, dancing to Durham. Move to stop potential bank crisis by Ken Sweet, Christopher Rugaber, Chris Majerian, and Kathy Buswitz. Survey on rent, states youth want stabilization. In 10 counties with most young renters, at least 40% say they paid more than 30% of income toward housing by Elizabeth Hernandez. A new survey details how Colorado's rent prices keep the state's young residents from seeking medical care, buying groceries and pursuing a college degree. And it found a majority of young Coloradans support rent stabilization policies. The survey released Monday by progressive youth advocacy organization, New Era Colorado, polled 506 Coloradans between 18 and 34 and was weighted by gender, race, ethnicity, education and voter registration to match the characteristics of Colorado's 18 to 34-year-old population based on data from the U.S. Census Bureau, according to New Era Colorado. We're creating an environment in Colorado where we're radicalizing young people to get involved in politics because if they can't afford to live, pay their medical debt, their student loans, they're, they're getting people are going to just start getting involved to change that," said Tosh Berwick, New Era Colorado political director. A map produced by New Era Colorado using Census Bureau data illustrates a breakdown of Colorado counties by the number of young people cost burdened by rent, paying more than 30% of their income towards housing, New Era Colorado said. In Colorado's 10 counties with the most young renters, at least 40% paid more than 30% of their income towards housing, New Era found, including 60% of young households in Boulder County, 52% in El Paso County, and 42% in Denver. In 17 of Colorado's 64 counties, at least half of households paid unaffordable rent, New Era found. Young people are saying loud and clear, and Governor Polis agrees Their rent is too damn high in Colorado, said Nicole Hensel, Executive Director of New Era Colorado, in a news release. This survey shows that young people across the state are increa increasingly cannot afford to live here, giving up careers, families, and futures in Colorado. Young people deserve to live where their lives are. How does that housing unaffordability impact Colorado's young adults? New Era's survey found nearly 25% of surveyed youth neglected a medical appointment. 19% went without a behavioral health appointment to make rent. About 34% of young people skipped groceries to pay rent. About 26% of those surveyed passed up an opportunity for a college degree to pay for housing. Nearly 40% of young people said they planned to leave Colorado to find more affordable housing. These survey results matter, Berwick said, because they show legislators what their constituents want. Young Coloradans who knew Arrow said comprise the largest voting bloc in the state and turn out in record numbers want to see bold action, Berwick said, no matter their political party. Almost 8 in 10 or 81% of young people supported giving local governments the option to place limits on how much landlords can raise rent each year, including almost half or 48% of young Republicans surveyed and 96% of young Democrats in Colorado. At the Capitol, we often get really stuck in these binaries about which party is so far left and which is so far right. But when you look at the data, the policies people really want are more bipartisan than we think, Berwick said. When asked whether they would support or oppose rent stabilization policies that would ensure renters have reasonable, predictable rents, 91 percent of survey respondents supported rent stabilization policies, including 68 percent of Republican respondents and 97 percent of Democrat respondents. Young adults are especially hard hit by outrageous rent prices charged by some greedy corporate landlords, said Carmen Medrano, the co-chair of Colorado Homes for All. When four out of ten young people say they won't be able to stay in the communities they grew up in because they can't afford housing, we have a real problem. Silicon Valley Bank. U.S. officials moved to stop potential bank crisis. By Ken Sweet, Christopher Rugaber, Chris Majerian, and Kathy Busowitz, the Associated Press. New York. The U.S. government took extraordinary steps Sunday to stop a potential banking crisis after the historic failure of Silicon Valley Bank, assuring depositors at the failed financial institution that they would be able to access all of their money quickly. The announcement came amid fears that factors that caused the Santa Clara, California-based bank to fail could spread, and only hours before trading began in Asia. Regulators had worked all weekend to try and come up with a buyer for the bank, which was the second-largest bank failure in history. Those efforts appeared to have failed as of Sunday. In a sign of quickly... In a sign of quickly the financial bleeding was occurring, regulators announced that New York-based Signature Bank had failed and was being seized on Sunday. At more than $110 billion in assets, Signature Bank is the third largest bank failure in U.S. history. The Treasury Department, Federal Reserve, and FDIC said Sunday that all Silicon Valley bank clients will be protected and have access to their funds and announced steps designed to protect the bank's customers and prevent more bank runs. This step will ensure that the U.S. banking system continues to perform its vital roles of protecting deposits and providing access to credit to households and businesses in a manner that promotes strong and sustainable economic growth, the agency said in a joint statement. Regulators had to rush to close Silicon Valley Bank, a financial institution with more than $200 billion in assets on Friday, when it experienced a traditional run on the bank where depositors rushed to withdraw their funds all at once. It is the second-largest bank failure in U.S. history, behind only the 2008 failure of Washington Mutual. Some prominent Silicon Valley executives feared that if Washington didn't rescue the failed bank, customers would make runs on other financial institutions in the coming days. Stock prices plunged over the last few days at other banks that cater to technology companies, including First Republic Bank and PacWest Bank. Among the bank's customers are a range of companies from California's wine industry, where many wineries rely on Silicon Valley Bank for loans and technology startups devoted to combating climate change. Sunrun, which sells and leases solar energy systems, had less than $80 million of cash deposits with Silicon Valley Bank as of Friday and expects to have more information on expected recovery in the coming week, the company said in a statement. Stitch Fix, the popular clothing retail website, disclosed in a recent quarterly report that it had a credit line of up to $100 million with Silicon Valley Bank and other lenders. Silicon Valley Bank began to slide into insolvency when its customers, largely technology companies that needed cash as they struggled to get financing, started to withdraw their deposits. Selling bonds. The bank had to sell bonds at a loss to cover the withdrawals, leading to the largest failure of a U.S. financial institution since the height of the financial crisis. Raising rates. Yellen described rising interest rates which have been increased by the Federal Reserve to combat inflation as the core problem for Silicon Valley Bank. Many of its assets such as bonds or mortgage-backed securities lost market value as rates climbed. Sheila Blair, who was chairwoman of the FDIC chair during the 2008 financial crisis, recalled that with almost all the bank failures during that time, we sold a failed bank to a healthy bank and usually the healthy acquirer would also cover the uninsured because they wanted the franchise value of those large depositors. So optimally, that's the best outcome. But with Silicon Valley Bank, she told NBC's Meet the Press, this was a liquidity failure, it was a bank run, so they didn't have time to prepare to market the bank. So they're having to do that now and playing catch up. Week ahead, board to review park plans. The Erie Board of Trustees meets 6.30 p.m. Tuesday at Erie Town Hall, 645 Holbrook Street to review conceptual site plans for the 10-acre Compass Neighborhood Park and 14-acre Morgan Hill Neighborhood Park. The meeting will be held in person and is available virtually via ERICO.gov. BVSD board session set. The Boulder Valley School Board is hosting two community information sessions Wednesday for those interested in running for the board in November. The sessions are at 11.30 a.m. and 5.30 p.m. at the Boulder Valley School District Education Center 6500 Arapaho, Boulder. Fire roundtable set. Members of the Louisville City Council will join a special meeting 3 p.m. Friday at the Superior Community Center, 1500 Colton Road, for a Marshall Fire roundtable discussion. Participants will be Governor Jared Polis, U.S. Representative Joe Neguse, and Insurance Commissioner Michael Conway. Regional Science Fair. Three BOCO students went best in show at fair. 32 av- advanced to senior junior state championships by Amy Bounds. Fromfield High School senior Kavya Bharathi Ch- Chidambaram went into research microplastics and was working with a research mentor with experience with anemones. She ended up combining the two, designing an experiment that involved feeding microplastics to anemones in tanks, She kept at school to see if the plastics accumulated and would be passed on to predators. The anemones proved trickier to work with than expected, requiring her to make five attempts and change her methods to come up with a viable experiment. She ended up using four different concentrations of microplastics, which she created using 3D filament and a food processor in her fifth round. It was definitely the full experience of the scientific method and process, she said. Through dissection, she determined that the microplastics not only accumulated inside the anemones, but also attached to their tissue, a depressing result that suggests microplastics may act the same as heavy metals that end up in the fish that people eat. Her project recently won Best in Show at the Senior Level at the annual Cordon Pharma Colorado Regional Science Fair held at Boulder's Platte Middle School in partnership with Boulder Valley School District. While Chittabarum's project, also qualified for the state and international science fair. She is not planning to continue with her project. She plans to major in environmental science, but is looking to focus on policy instead of research. The science fair was a really cool opportunity, she said. I could explore science research on my own terms and work with a researcher already in the field as a mentor. Altogether, 18 projects in the senior division qualified for the upcoming state competition, as did 14 junior division projects. Two peak-to-peak charter school students, Amriti, Saini, and Alexander Flint, also qualified for the international fair in the senior division. Saini went first in the environmental engineering category, while Flint took first in physics and astronomy. Amrita, a junior at peak-to-peak who plans to major in environmental science, or a similar field, said her project builds on one she entered in last year's fair. Her original idea came from a trip to India where she saw two problems, large air pollutants such as CO2, as well as inequities in lighting access. To solve both issues, she wanted to use bioluminescent and photosynthetic algae, reducing atmospheric CO2 concentrations through photosynthesis, and providing a light source with bioluminescence that's independent of infrastructure and fossil fuels. Last year, she tried to apply the algae to curtains to create photosynthetic textiles, but she found that fabrics didn't work well, so she decided to test hydrogels for this year's project. Her testing found that hydrogels weren't a good choice either. Instead, she found another material that did work, a film made from agar agar and glycerin. There was a lot of trial and error, she said. She said challenges including figured, included figuring out how to care for the algae without access to a lab and having to teach herself new skills in a short amount of time. In the future, she said, she wants to test more materials. I'm really passionate about my project and I think its potential applications are very interesting, she said. There is so much potential with science to improve people's lives, which I think is very inspiring. In the junior division, Charlie Danko, an eighth grader at Longmont's Flagstaff Academy, tied for best of show with eighth grader Grace Zhu of Boulder Summit Middle School. Both plan to compete at the state science fair. Charlie built a robotic arm prototype with the goal of creating an affordable robot that could be used in dangerous factories. He used a CAD computer program to design the the arm, then used a 3D printer to make the majority of the parts. I really like mechanical engineering, software engineering, and electrical engineering, he said. I wanted a way to combine all three and maybe help people at the same time. I researched, and this is what I came up with. While he had some experience with robotics, he said it wasn't anything as big or complex as the robotic arm. He ended up remaking about 300 3D printed pieces to get it to work as well as he wanted. I went through many iterations of the robotic arm and just changing small things that didn't work in the previous design, he said. I was very happy with how it turned out. Grace said she entered the science fair because she likes researching and finding results. She came up with her idea to look at soil issues in the Marshall Fire area after hearing an air quality warning from Alexa, researching it and finding that Boulder County found no significant air quality or soil issues in the burn area after debris removal. I was curious about it, she said. I wanted to find out more. For her project, she grew nematodes treated with soil from outside the fire burn area, soil that was in a location that burned and soil close to but not affected by the fire. Then she tested the nematodes. There was a difference between the soil group and the control groups, but I would need to do further testing to make sure there's actually a significant difference, she said. Substance-free seeding. Bill for sports concerts would set national precedent. Co-sponsors Priola Dugroy Kennedy says that market is deeply underserved by John Wenzel. State legislators this week plan to vote on a bill that would require substance-free seating for Colorado's sporting events and concerts at venues with more than 7,000 seats, including stadiums, arenas, and amphitheaters. Senate Bill 23-171, introduced February 27th by Colorado Senator Kevin Priola and Representative Chris DeGroy-Kennedy, would require venues such as Ball Arena, Coors Field, Red Rocks Amphitheater, and Empower Field at Mile High to offer 4% of their audience capacity as substance-free seating, where alcohol, tobacco, and other substances would be banned. The bill addresses the need for families and people in addiction recovery to have substance-free spaces at sporting events and concerts, co-sponsor Priola said Friday, and is part of a growing national movement towards such spaces. The bill would also set a national precedent as the first of its type in the country, although some sports stadiums, including Coors Field, already offer small, alcohol-free sections for families. There's a growing sober community and a segment of the market that isn't being represented, Priola said. In the U.S., 9% of people at any one time are trying to cover, recover from addiction, and if you add in families that don't want a bunch of people partaking around them, 4% is completely reasonable. If passed, failure to comply with the bill would be basis for refusal or denial of an alcohol beverage license renewal or initial license issuance and other forms of Mm license-related discipline, according to the bill's text. Briola has been working with sports teams and venue owners to build support for the bill and has people lined up to endorse it at its late-week hearing, he said. If passed, the bill would take effect in 2026 giving teams and venues and promoters time to work with season ticket holders who might be affected by the new seating areas, as well as other legal and logistical concerns. Colorado's liquor and enforcement declined to comment on the proposed bill, saying that the governor's office would weigh in only if it passes. Denver-based concert promoter AEG Presents Rocky Mountains also declined to comment on the potential effect on ticket prices and seating layouts. Complicating the bill is the fact that most Colorado sports and concert venues have maintained sponsorship deals with liquor and beer companies. In addition, beer, liquor, and wine consumption is up year over year in Colorado as of 2020, according to data from the Pro Industry, Beverage Information Group, and Park Street Analysis. The Colorado Department of Revenue also showed a general upward trend in liquor excise taxes since 2016, according to a recent report. The bill would have unintended negative consequences for Colorado restaurants and bars, according to Colin Larson, Director of Government Affairs at the Colorado Restaurant Association. While we applaud the underlying goal of supporting people in recovery, this bill would create an unreasonable and unsustainable situation for independent food and beverage vendors with stadium locations, endangering their business and their employees' livelihoods, he said in a statement provided to the Denver Post. This bill would punish these operators for circumstances outside of their control as they have no way to police where customers go after they purchase an alcohol beverage in a stadium setting, Larson said. The unintended consequences here put stadium employees and vendors at a great disadvantage, opening the door for customer complaints and lost revenue. The bill would not affect off-premise alcohol consumption or sales, according to its language. But it would still represent a further decaying of the state's liquor industry, said Chris Fine, executive director of the Colorado Licensed Beverage Association. We deal with off-premise sales at mom-and-pop liquor stores, but I know that addressing addiction is a big passion project of Senator Priola, Fine said. However, we did just see millions of -of out-of-state dollars come in trying to eradicate our industry in relation to wine sales at grocery stores, which began March 1st. So this would just be another eroding effect. Priola said the bill's bar may seem high, but the public health campaigns against cigarettes, vaping, and other addictive substances have succeeded in the past, and his bill has the same potential. I've done a lot of work with opioid legislation and on other substance-related committees, and what I've learned in that time, especially working with the CU Anschutz Medical Center, is that alcohol use disorder is the biggest one out there. It just happens to be the most socially acceptable. Walking through magnometers and undergoing other rigour- rigorous security checks at public events seemed draconian 20 years ago, Priola said, and now it's standard. People can be retrained, but taking his own kits to sporting events and seeing unruly substance-driven behavior also inspired the bill, Priola said. He acknowledged the enforcement would be complicated and that passage is likely an uphill battle given the lack of response from liquor industry players. He said he'll introduce it as many times as necessary until it passes. There are already mechanisms at venues to report issues with rowdy attendees, and this would piggyback on that, he said. But I think large entertainment venues, most of which are publicly funded, could look at this as a market opportunity to serve a broader customer base. World's Shortest St. Patrick Day Parade Lawnshare Drill Teams Marching to Own Beat by Andrea Graheta, Prairie Mountain Media. Legend has it that, th- that years ago at the old J.J. McCabe's Bar on Walnut Street and 10th, a group of patrons decided to march to 9th Street and back to the bar. The march was dubbed the World's Shortest St. Patrick's Day Parade, and thus a Boulder tradition was created. The World's Shortest St. Patrick's Day Parade was held Sunday along 16th Street between Pearl and Spruce, Although the parade was only a block long, more than 200 people stood along the street to watch the parade go by. Although the parade was short, it was noticeable. The street was filled with people wearing green, a bagpipe quartet, Irish wolfhounds, Irish dancing, bicycle cruisers, and an appearance by Governor Jared Polis. The Avoca Irish Dance Academy and McTaggart Irish Dancers both performed at the parade. The dancers stood tall with rigid upper bodies, but they also had quick and precise movements on their feet. Alyssa Windholtz, a part of the Avoca Academy, said that dancing at the parade is always a fun time. Windholtz, 16, has been Irish dancing since she was 10. She said the dance was always an escape for her and when she felt the most free. It's like when I dance, nothing else matters anymore. You get out of the world, Windholtz said Sunday. She described Irish dance as incredibly technical, where having a stiff, still upper body is just as important as the fast-paced leg movement. Janet Green, who is also part of Abaca, said that she started to Irish dance when she was 30 years old and has now been dancing for 13 years. Green said that she always thought Irish dance was an interesting style she wanted to learn, so she jumped right in. I just started and I fell in love, so I've been doing it ever since, Green said. The patio furniture drill team made its way along the block with its lawn chairs in hand. The drill team played a familiar Queen Melody, tapping its lawn chairs against the street twice and then snapping the chairs shut as they began to sing, We Will Sham Rock You. Matt Cutter is the leader of Patio Furniture. Cutter said that he noticed a lawn chair drill team missing from the parade, so he might as well make one himself. He said the drill team was a staple of the parade and it has to be there, he said. Then after a few phone calls to friends and scrounging up lawn chairs, the drill team was born. Let's keep the tradition alive. We've lost a lot of things in Boulder that kept it weird, kept it unique, and those things are more important than ever today, Cutter said. The parade was hosted by the Independent Order of Oddfellows, Boulder Lodge 9, a Boulder-based nonprofit. But the parade was only a prelude to the party that continued at the IOOF Lodge. For a $20 donation, the fund continued with Irish food, drinks, and even more Irish dancing. Christy Russell, part of the International Association of Rebecca's Assemblies, said that the Rebecca's work alongside the IOOF. Both organizations support the Boulder community from scholarships, fundraising, and other charitable events. We work to fortify and nurse the community as needed, Russell said. Champions, Disabled Actors Shine, by Brooke Leffert's The Associated Press, New York. The new comedy, champion stars Woody Harrelson and Caitlin Olson, but the veteran actors have tough competition for the spotlight with some charismatic newcomers. Harrelson plays a college basketball coach with a bad temper who's facing jail time or community service for some bad behavior. To avoid punishment, he finds himself coaching a basketball team of young adults with intellectual disabilities who helped him rediscover the joy of the game. Harrelson's agent and another producer wanted to remake the original film called Campiones, Spain's biggest box office hit in 2018, and thought the actor and basketball lover would be a great fit. Harrelson loved the story and signed on as star and executive producer and tapped his longtime friend Bobby Farrelly to direct. Casting was challenging as the producers wanted the athletes played by disabled actors who also needed basketball skills. They auditioned hundreds of people before finding the 10 standout personalities who make up the Friends basketball team. Harrelson said he wasn't sure what to expect on the first day of shooting. Once I came and met everybody and we started at it, I was like, oh, this is going to be so much fun. And it really was. Harrelson told the Associated Press. They taught me that they can nail the lines no problem. But they also taught me just the great fluidity of being who they are. The ten actors have different intellectual challenges, but many found their comedy chops on screen. Everybody brought something so unique and different to it, Olsen said, and parts of their actual personalities shone through, which is probably why they got the role in the first place. There was a lot of wonderful acting, but there's also a lot of wonderful just being themselves, and it gave us an opportunity to just play off of that. The film was a chance for Harrelson to collaborate again with Verily, after making the bowling comedy Kingpin in 1996. The director said he thinks audiences are more open to disabled actors on screen and seeing their stories. He recalled making the 2005 movie The Ringer with his brother, Pete Farrelly, where Johnny Knoxville infiltrated the Special Olympics. Farrelly said they cast non-disabled actors in disabled roles back then. We would never do that now. So the world has changed in that regard, Farrelly said. We played that a lot broader. It was much more of a kind of a goofy comedy. This one here is set in reality. These are all very real people. Before, we didn't think anything of it. It was just what people were doing. Dustin Hoffman played Rain Man, you know. But nowadays, I think we've come to realize that disabled actors have a hard time getting roles. So the parts they do have in Hollywood, they should go to them. Some of the actors playing the Friends team attended the film's New York premiere last week. And for many, it was their first time on a red carpet. James Day Keith, a special Olympian for basketball who plays Benny in the film, said he likes setting a positive example for other disabled actors. I do see myself as a role model because seeing what I did will probably make them want to do it for themselves because there's no limit to success, Keith said. Casey Metcalf, who plays Marlon, said he hopes disabled actors have a place in Hollywood going forward. The more people we have in this industry who are diverse, like myself, not just racially diverse, but you're neurodiverse. I think that's exactly, you know, what the industry needs, Metcalf said. Today's highlight in history. On this day in 1925, the Tennessee General Assembly approved a bill prohibiting the teaching of the theory of evolution. Governor Austin P. signed the measure on March 21st. Tennessee repealed the law in 1967. On this date in 1781, the seventh planet of the solar system, Uranus, was discovered by Sir William Herschel. In 1862, President Abraham Lincoln signed a measure prohibiting Union military officers from returning fugitive slaves to their owners. In 1933, banks in the U.S. began to reopen after a holiday declared by President Franklin D. Roosevelt. 1938, Famed attorney Clarence S. Darrow died in Chicago. 1943, financier and philanthropist J.P. Morgan, Jr., 75, died in Boca Grande, Florida. 1946, U.S. Army PFC Sadao Munamori was posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor for sacrificing himself to save fellow soldiers from a grenade explosion in Sarabasa, Italy. He was the only Japanese-American service member so recognized in the immediate aftermath of World War II. 1954, the Battle of Dien Bien Phu began during the First Indochina War as Viet Minh forces attacked French troops who were defeated nearly two months later. We'll now be reading some articles from the Longmont Times call. Johnny St. Vorain, a little digging on active mine near path. Dear Johnny, On the south side of the bike path east of town is a new chain-link fence just west of the North 119th Street. The new fence has signs on it that say, Danger! Active mine! Keep out! How come I've seen nothing about this? Sounds fishy. Dear Z, it's not fishy now, but it might be fishy one of these days. The fence has been erected and signs placed in preparation for gravel mining on that property, the permit for which was granted by Boulder County in 2003 according to documents on the City of Longmont website. In 2015, the property owner submitted an application for annexation into the city and desired to maintain their gravel mining permit. They requested approval of a PUD, Planned Unit Development Plan, which mirrored the mining plan and conditions of approval as set forth in the original Boulder County permit. Jim Angstadt, Longmont's Director of Public Works and Engineering, said in an email. The PUD plan was amended to reflect changes to the Irwin Thomas site as a result of the Costco development. Angstadt said the city has been working with the building materials company Wholesome Group, formerly Aggregate Industries, on the timing for the start of the mining operations. There are a number of pre-mining activities which must take place prior to the start of actual mining, Angstadt said. The city anticipates that pre-mining activities will begin within the next three weeks with mining of material to be underway in April. By the time you read this, those pre-mining activities might have already started. When the mining is complete, the final reclamation plan includes five irregularly shaped ponds, totaling about 73 acres, according to an overview of the project on the city's website. The mining process can take up to 10 years, and the length of time depends on a number of factors, including market conditions, demand, and when they start mining, the website says. It's been a couple of years since you and other Longmont residents would have seen anything about this. According to the City's website, a neighborhood meeting was held in January 2016 and public hearings were held with the Planning and Zoning Commission in January 2017 and City Council in September 2017. Notification to all property owners within a thousand foot radius was mailed out and signs were posted on the property. The Times Call wrote about plans for this property in July 2021 when the city council okayed the changes to the land designations. Times Call Line California and Walgreens It shouldn't be any of the California governor's business what Walgreens chooses to sell or chooses not to sell. The only reason that the governor is attacking Walgreens so publicly is he's trying to deflect attention away from the fact that he went on vacation and left the state during California's worst natural disaster in years. Brain rot. In regard to the caller that felt their mind was bending after hearing some alleged news stories, I would suggest what they're actually experiencing is the sensation of the brain rotting from the inside out after a steady diet of Fox News. If they ever consulted reliable news sources, they would be aware that their favorite fake news outlet is being sued for more than a billion dollars for dispensing these very lies while laughing about those gullible enough to believe them. Orange Jumpsuit. I heard that the ex-president is going to come out with a new fashion line of orange jumpsuits with a Superman logo on it. I can't wait to see him modeling his orange jumpsuits, and it'll probably be a big hit with his fans, and he should make lots of money at it. George Will. I would be much more likely to read George Will's column if he ever served any kind of public service position, like a postal worker or a city clerk or anything but I think George Will has no con- concept of what it's like to deal with public servant problems or like prosecuting criminals. Rochat, can you see up on the roof? Parts of my childhood forever echo with the voice of Chime Topol. If the name doesn't ring a bell with you, look up a friend who's into great musicals, ask them who this Topol guy is, and then prepare to be listening for a long, long time. You mean you've never seen Fiddler on the Roof? Many actors have inhabited Fiddler's lead role of Tevye, the Russian Jew whose traditional world is beginning to pull apart. Many of them have been fantastic. But if you saw the music, the movie, if you owned a soundtrack album like my parents did, or played it a zillion times like I did, then Topol is certainly the Tevye that lives in your mind and heart a measured pace, a wry humor, an unmistakable voice. And now, like so many other greats, what we have left are memories. It's so, it's so easy to get pigeonholed in television and film. Adam West became Batman to such an extent that he spent much of his remaining career. Leonard, Leonard, e. Moy, Leonard Nimoy wound up writing a book, I Am Not Spock, and later, later a sequel that embraced the inevitable I Am Spock. Topol lived in an unusual variation of that world. He got to spend a career doing many other things, some of them light years away from his small town milkman. The, ca- the case of his role in Flash Gordon, but he also came back to Tebye, a role he played on stage again and again. By the time he made his last bow in 2009, he estimated he would played the role over 3,500 times and still loved it. An unusual case indeed, but then Fiddler is a very unusual show. Spoiler alert for newcomers. It's not a happy ending musical except in the broadest sense. At its heart, it's a story about the struggle between identity and change in times when the way it's always been done had to find ways to adapt. Chevier's own daughters make choices that force him to re-examine who he is and what's important to him time and time again. And after all the choice and heartbreak and a change that's bigger than anyone ends up shattering the community, Erasing the village that's endured so much for so long and forcing its former inhabitants to start again in a hundred different places. It's a powerful, heart wrenching, and oh so familiar, old expectations turned upside down, a world that looks less and less familiar every day, familiar families trying to adapt to each other, either strengthening or shattering in the attempt. All of it resonates pretty strongly these days and these last few years especially. As the internet as the internet goes. Families trying to adapt to each other, either strengthening or shattering in the attempt. All of it resonates pretty strongly these days. As the internet joke goes, it's time when normal is just a drier setting. But if our change-filled world resonates with Tevye's mythical village of Anatevka, maybe some of the lessons do as well. Tevye's best choices are always the ones that take someone instead of shut them out. The one time he closes the door on someone asking for acceptance, it tears his family apart. And when he finds a way to reopen that door just a crack, it adds the smallest bit of hope, even as his world is scattered to the winds. Maybe that's what kept Topol coming back to the story. It certainly keeps drawing me. And if enough of us can reach out with love to each other, even when we're still trying to figure out who we are and where we belong, maybe that can be enough. I do what I can, Topol once said of the children's charity work he did later in his life. Otherwise, it is a waste of fame. Do what you can, with what you have, with all the love you have in you. There are worse ways to spend a life. And if you can make a little time to watch Fiddler as well, so much the better. Views from the nation's press. The Colombian on how we can reduce poverty. The end of enhanced payments from the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program generates competing reactions. On one hand, it is laudable that a temporary government assistance program is allowed to expire, rejecting an axiom from famed economist Milton Friedman. Nothing is so permanent as a temporary government program. One of many examples, farm subsidies were once enacted temporarily to combat low prices and low incomes. The subsidy program is now nearing its centennial. On the other hand, there are needy Americans who are negatively impacted by a rollback in the SNAP program colloquially known as food stamps. For millions across the country, including in Washington, enhanced SNAP benefits have been lifelines through the disruption of the COVID-19 pandemic. Additional SNAP payments were enacted early in the pandemic, providing additional benefits that recipients were able to spend on groceries. For residents in 32 states, that enhanced payments, those enhanced payments were halted on March 1st, directly impacting more than 30 million Americans Other states had previously rolled back payments. This hunger cliff is coming to the vast majority of states, and people will, on average, lose about $82 of SNAP benefits a month, Ellen Vollinger, SNAP director at an anti-hunger advocacy group, told CBS News in late February. That is a stunning number. For some families, the decline in benefits amounts to $200 a month. Meanwhile, grocery prices are up about 10% higher than they were a year ago, an increase in part fueled by enhanced SNAP benefits. Food banks have reported a spike in demand through the COVID pandemic and a decline in SNAP payments is expected to increase the need. Rising food prices have combined with increases for rent, fuel, and other necessities to leave many people in a tenuous position. While those people reflect the practical implications of changes to food assistance programs, there are also philosophical questions. For a nation that considers itself the world's wealthiest, Is it morally acceptable to have millions of Americans wondering whether they can put food on the table? And for families with children, what are the lifelong impacts of food insecurity during childhood? The Dominion post on how conservative values have been cast aside as Congress wages wars on woke. Earlier this month, Congress passed a joint resolution disproving a Department of Labor rule that allows investment firms to take into consideration environmental, social, and governance factors. The resolution, if signed into law, would reverse the rule and forbid investment firms from using non-monetary factors when crafting portfolios for investors, even if it's what investors want. The House of Representatives passed the resolution on a party-line vote. In the Senate, Senators Joe Manchin and John Tester, Democrat of Montana, joined with Republicans to approve the disapproval. In an interview with Fox News about his support of the resolution, Manchin said, ESGs by itself could just kill our economy. We assume he means the fossil fuel industry from which he personally benefits. The resolution will go to President Joe Biden, who will have to decide whether or not to veto the bill. We hope he does. Because when it comes to ESG investing, also called sustainable investing, Congress has crossed the line with its resolution. There are certainly cases where government interference in the market is warranted, like when monopolies kill competition and drive up prices, or when companies shirk their responsibilities to protect consumers. The Department of Labor rule does not mandate that investment firms offer ESG, nor does it any government-funded incentive for doing so. It merely gives financial institutions the ability to offer something that consumers increasingly want. Even within the investment firms, not every client has to participate. The vast majority, including big-name firms like Charles Schwab and Fisher Investments, offer optional ESG portfolios, traditional portfolios that give zero consideration to ESG or the ability to select a combination of ESG and regular investments. In other words, Congress's resolution is actually limiting the free market. Individual investors increasingly want to know that their money is doing good and supporting companies that reflect their own personal values. Congress is essentially taking away investors' say in what is being done with their dollars because conservatives view ESG as a form of wokeism, forcing progressive values onto Wall Street rather than the market responding to consumer demand. It boggles the mind how quickly conservatives abandon their small government free market values in their endless pursuit of culture wars. Sometimes government regulation of the financial industry as industry, industry is necessary, but this is not one of those times. Guest Opinion, in regard to housing crisis, one size cannot fit all, by Greg Ewan. How to solve what is truly a housing supply and price price crisis? I dread what I can imagine. I have nervously envisioned reintroduction of the company town or even conversion of open space outside the city toward productive subdivisions. And there goes more prime farmland. I can't speak for others, but I know I can't eat my house. There can be a number of possible solutions which I can discuss in a subsequent column. For now, it's enough to say one size cannot fit all. Density and sprawl are posed as opposites. One method aimed at reducing sprawl applied a few decades ago by Portland, Oregon instituted an urban growth boundary. Sprawl ceased, but land prices soared. As a planner, I understand the intent. But this kind of measure has the same kind of effect as rent control. The supply valve closes, and how do prices behave then? And what happens when the inevitable bust later comes to to answer an unfettered boom? For residents sensing development pressure, a better feeling might be created by the feel of a satisfying, less dense environment. It's possible if we recognize that density is not only useful, but now vital if we are to gain a balance between housing and jobs. Design gains importance. Many elements can play a role, such as reducing side and rear setbacks, limiting off-street parking, seeking stepped-back upper floors. Doesn't zoning at least help limit imbalanced development? Zoning's original purpose, as fashioned in the northeast part of the USA during the early 20th century, was to separate less wholesome uses from those more so. Today, today zoning offers a reasonably easy way to evaluate investment. The difficulties arise after the closing when the check has been delivered. That's what's known in the planning profession as the drawbridge phenomena. Gates hold, whereby one script on that piece of paradise means everything can stop. I'm here now, so stay away. Change is difficult, but community is as community does. MaMA has its unique problems and constraints, eg. a short planning history, two narrow streets that don't go through and a leakage rate of about 25% or one-fourth of the labor force living here and working out of town. I've met an obviously competent service employee working more than one job here and living in a small RV. Does this sit well with neighbors who prize a peaceful, clean, urban streetscape that broadcasts safety and a less chaotic existence? Locals react to new home building proposals at even elevated price points, and their tactics have become increasingly informed by apparently learning the language of policy and planning. Only one RV at any curb might ruin someone's day. A home buyer, particularly a first-time buyer, might drive until qualifying for a mortgage. Firestone to Longmont might not seem too burdensome of commute, but how far will people be traveling next year to work here? Sterling? There is already an exodus from Denver attributed to the price of housing rented or owned. Destinations reported suggest we have now reached a new mantra, fly until you qualify. I have, been, I have long been aware of commuters approaching Denver from Greeley, Colorado Springs, even Cheyenne. I have also heard about commuting into Washington, D.C. from the state of West Virginia. The popular Colorado front range, including Longmont, has apparently joined the less than laudable list of places related to extreme labor sheds. Now, the question, for whom do, should we intend or wish Longmont to exist? From where do we hope to gain firefighters, police officers, teachers, nurses? We face a conundrum similar to the mountain ski towns in which day workers commute more than 60 miles each way, along which journey as astronomically expensive child care is often engaged. One dead battery or flat tire and job loss becomes much more likely. Even Denver has seen as many as 12 persons jammed into a single residence in hopes of alleviating housing stress. Is this Longmont's future? A decade ago, city leaders touted the idea of primary jobs, those contributing to the practice and expression of cycles of capital. They produce to sell beyond Longmont while sourcing inputs within. If we continue as we are, Longmont won't need a museum expansion. The city might become one. Open Forum. New guidelines will make for cleaner composting. We now have new composting guidelines for all of Boulder County that will make it simpler for households to keep methane-producing organic waste out of landfills. These new guidelines mean only two types of waste belong in compost bins, food scraps and yard waste. Food scraps can be loose or in CMA-approved green compostable three-gallon bags. No more paper napkins, coffee filters, tea bags, cardboard, pizza boxes, paper bags, shredded paper, or non-food items with compostable labels. These labels are often misleading because some manufacturers pretend their products are more eco-friendly than they actually are. Yard waste should be put in loose and unbagged. The purpose is to provide clean, uncontaminated organic materials for the organic processor so they can produce high-quality compost. EcoCycle has clear information about the new guidelines at EcoCycle.org. People can quickly learn the guidelines and see helpful tips like freezing full food scrap bags before placing them in bins. Visit LawnmontColorado.gov to sign up for curbside composting, explore citywide waste diversion options, and learn about Lawnmont's recently updated zero waste resolution. Diverting 75% of waste from landfills by 2030 is a goal within reach. We've already achieved a 41% diversion rate but we have to get more organic materials out of the landfills via composting, increased recycling, and avoiding single-use disposables. EcoCycle is a great resource for other ways to improve our waste diversion efforts. Composting is an inexpensive concrete action folks can take to mitigate greenhouse gas emissions. The new guidelines provide an opportunity to learn more. Please give this some attention and sign up for curbside composting. If you add composting and switch to every-other-week trash collection, you'll get a new yellow lid, smaller trash bin and pay the same amount for collection with a whole lot of added value for the whole community. Longmont's Conflicts of Interest policy is ineffective. Central to City Council's ethics discussion should be the adoption of a Conflicts of Interest policy in the Municipal Code for City Council and Boards and Commissions. As it stands now, boards and commissions are instructed to follow Rule 7 of City Council's Rules of Procedure according to the Planning Director. Rule 7 is a two-sentence statement which requires extension from vote, from a vote regarding a matter before council if a council member, by extension, a board member, or Planning and Zoning Commission Commissioner, has a personal, financial, or other conflict of interest or appearance thereof, which would affect public confidence in any matter to be voted on upon or otherwise officially considered. There's a loophole to this requirement. It's up to the disclosing council member, commissioner or board member to decide whether he or she has a conflict of interest requiring abstention. At the 2021 Rivertown annexation public hearing, a planning and zoning commissioner disclosed the Rivertown applicant was a client of his. The commissioner did not recuse himself from participating in the discussion of the application, nor voting to recommend approval of the application. A deputy city attorney's exclam- explanation to the commission of the city's conflicts of interest policy was the commissioner who made the disclosure is the only one who determines whether he has a conflict. No one else. City council needs to adopt stronger regulations in the municipal code to address conflicts of interest on council and boards and commissions. The policy should clearly spell out what constitutes a conflict. <laughs> Decision made by these entities profoundly impact our neighborhoods and open space. It's important to maintain integrity of the deciding bodies and processes so public trust in the system is not diminished and residents are confident they're getting a fair and impartial hearing." Ruby Bowman, Longmont. Thank you for joining us for the Monday, March 13th reading of the Bowler Daily Camera and Longmont Times Call. My name is Anita Head. AINC Programming is brought to you in part by WANA Brands. Enhancing customers' lives through the responsible use of cannabis. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.